There's always kind of a ghost in the machine somewhere. Mark Erickson, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. Why don't you let our listeners know who you are and what you work on. I'm Mark Erickson. I work full-time at a, a large contracting company. Most people probably know me for my work in and around Redux. I'm one of the primary Redux maintainers. Generally spend a lot of time answering questions about React and Redux. Anywhere there's a text box on the internet, I will generally pop up anytime the word Redux gets mentioned anywhere and supply links and references. Also typically known for being that guy with the Simpsons avatar. Yeah, uh, you've told your story of how you got into the project on uh, quite a few podcasts that we'll link to. And what I really enjoy about your story is you're someone who you were so helpful, you were almost forced to take over because people are like, this guy, he knows all the answers. And I don't know if anyone else knows all the answers, so I guess we gotta put this guy in charge, is kind of how it seemed like it went. That's pretty close, yeah. Dan handed the keys over to myself and Tim Dore in the summer of 2016, after he'd gotten busy with working on the React team at Facebook. I really didn't feel like I had the right to actually have an opinion on how the library worked and how development ought to go for quite a while. And it was actually kind of because people were asking certain questions and offering certain PRs that I, I finally kind of had to have an opinion. And it wasn't until after that had gone on for a while that I, I really kind of considered myself to actually be a maintainer. Yeah, it's going to be cool to tease apart what exactly the difference between like Redux and now this this new kind of Redux toolkit. This is how you first got onto my radar is, as I say, you've done a handful of podcasts about this. And the first time I heard you kind of talk about what Redux toolkit was, it really resonated with me because I was someone who went through a boot camp. In our boot camp, the, the Redux portion of the boot camp is legendary. It is legendary for being legendarily hard. And everyone kind of has an opinion on why that is and whether it should be that way or, or needs to be that way, whether it's inherent to Redux itself, whether it's functional programming is just more challenging than object-oriented programming. There's a lot of different kind of theories about why this is. What you were talking about is part of what makes Redux challenging is simply the way that we use it and the conventions around it because of how you would split up your files and have your logic kind of all over the place. The point of Redux Toolkit, as I understood it, was to create conventions to make Redux a little bit easier and a little bit nicer to use. So do you think that's kind of accurate? And then how would you describe what those type of conventions are? That's a good series of questions, and I have a whole bunch of answers that I will kind of combine into one. So, I mean, like, first off, with, like, even just the boot camp thing you were mentioning, I was actually just tweeting about this, like, a day or two ago. I've noticed that a lot of people's struggles with React and Redux just in general aren't even React and Redux questions at all. It's really about JavaScript fundamentals, even something as simple as like, how do I access a nested field in a JavaScript object? Well, it's obj.a.b.c, but I've seen people struggle with that 
much less things like arrow function syntax and object spreads or the event loop. So many of these questions really boil down to how much of a grasp do you have on the fundamentals of JavaScript itself? Both React and Redux layer a lot of framework-specific concepts and concerns on top of that, but it's, it's kind of like the classic, how much trouble are you going to have with algebra if you can't even add and subtract properly? I don't want to go off into the whole gatekeeping discussion where you, know, you, you must spend five years learning the fundamentals of JavaScript before you can ever write your first line of React code or something like that, because I, I think that's kind of silly and absurd, and it's also its whole separate argument that I don't want to get into. But well and truly, so many people's struggles would either be resolved or at least lessened if they had a better grasp on the fundamentals of JavaScript. And it's so like with that bootcamp type environment, that's that's actually kind of the big problem because I don't know the exact timelines, but I, I get the sense that in most cases, it's like, here's a month of JavaScript. Here's a month of React. Hi, here's a month of Redux. And you're being thrown into these other tools when you really don't even have the foundation. Purely just from that perspective, I can see learning either of those to be incredibly difficult. And for Redux itself, we typically advise that most folks shouldn't really try to get into it until they're already at least comfortable with React, partly just because that way there's fewer concepts to learn at once, but also because by that time it's more clear what React does, how it works, what are some of the problems you run into trying to use React, and then it's more clear how Redux can fit into that and what problems Redux might help you solve. Especially in that bootcamp type environment, being thrown into just React and Redux like right away is going to be difficult for a lot of people. You pointed to some of the common concerns people have with learning Redux in general. Historically, there has been a lot of complexity around the standard patterns that we even showed in our docs. And frankly, a lot of those patterns existed because we showed them in our docs. Things like having your separate folders for action creators and constants and reducers, writing out string action types like const add to do equals quote add to do in upper screaming snake case, having switch statements and nested object spreads and whatnot. And on the one hand, not all of those were strictly required to use Redux. Redux itself doesn't care about your file structure. It's just some functions you can call. People have used different patterns for organizing files. You've never been required to declare your action types as separate variables and stuff. But those were the patterns we showed in the docs. And there were good reasons for those. And I've, I've discussed some of those in my idiomatic Redux series on my blog. But a lot of that is not... like I, I've described it as there's incidental complexity and inherent complexity. Redux has inherent complexity because it introduces a layer of indirection. You need to separate out the process of what happened by dispatching an action from the process of saying, here's how my state updates by putting that logic in a reducer. And that will always be a little more complicated than just saying obj.x equals one, two, three in a click handler. But a lot of this additional complexity comes from things like JavaScript is a mutable language by default. And so having to do immutable updates gets a lot more complicated. And yeah, a lot of the patterns that we showed required writing a lot more code. And that was kind of painful to deal with. Several years ago, I filed a discussion issue asking, like, how can we make Redux easier to use? How can we kind of like simplify some of these common patterns? 
out of that, we created this library called Redux Toolkit. And as you said, its primary purpose is to simplify the common use cases and patterns that people see in Redux code. And we were able to look at how are people using Redux? What are the common problems they run into? What are the pain points they're dealing with? And create a series of APIs that really simplify those standard use cases. So it's things like being able to create a Redux store with just a couple lines of code, one function call that sets it up with a good series of defaults that catches common mistakes like accidentally mutating the state that automatically turns on the Redux dev tools. Its API is like create slice, which automatically generates all those action creators and action types for you. So you never have to write them by hand ever again. It's using libraries like Immer, which let you write mutating syntax like state.todos.push inside and actually have that turned into safe and correct immutable updates so that you can't accidentally mutate ever again. And the state update code you're writing is just vastly simpler. And from there, we've gone on to add some additional APIs for things like making async calls and dispatching actions and managing normalized state in your reducers. And so all these are directly designed to simplify the standard things Redux users are trying to write today. I had a little experience with Redux. It was three years ago. I actually started before I learned React, I learned React Native. I watched a few talks and that, and they were like, oh, here's how you need to handle like offline state, online state, all these states. Okay, load up Redux, load up Redux Saga, load up 20 other things. Here you go. This is how to do state management. And it confused me as like a beginner to React, not necessarily a beginner to JavaScript. It confused the hell out of me for ages. I just ran away screaming and never came back. I feel like if I went to look at it now, I would probably understand it better now that I'm more seasoned. And it's definitely what you go back to of how much of the language do you understand before you can ask the right questions. For example, the other day, I was doing a uh, API request that required a bit of array manipulation with a bit of multi-step process to sort the array, add variables, sort it again. And as I was going through it, I was like, oh, it's going forward, it's going backwards, it's going forward. But I'm declaring new variables each time with the array with say array, so let A equals array one sort, blah, blah, blah. It was only when I actually realized that it was a muting it every single time that you think, wait, do all the things actually do this? And, you, and then you Google it and like, yep, all of these other things do it. And you just never notice it until you really notice it that it happens this way. It's a bit crazy sometimes. There's actually a site out there. I believe the URL is does it mutate dot xyz which just has a list of like all the different methods that are built into arrays and it's like mutates yes mutates no sort and reverse are probably the two that bite people the most because they return what looks like the sorted or reversed array but what you don't realize is it's the same array that just got updated in place in all aspects it doesn't matter if you put let a equals array dot sort what's actually happening is the, the array that you try to sort has now been mutated over with the sorted one so it doesn't matter if you did let a because the original array mutated and if you're trying to obviously keep a track of the progress through each step you're trying to do 
that gets quite confusing quite fast. And I think as a JavaScript developer, mutating and immutable are two concepts that are hardly taught properly. I didn't realize it until I actually learned it, if that makes sense, because a problem came up and then it still catches you out sometimes. Immutability is not a concept that is strictly unique to either Redux or React, but from what I've seen, both React and Redux emphasize that concept far more than any other framework. Vue, you've got your proxy wrapped variables. Ember is all about the get and set functions. Angular has all the Rx chains and class variables. It really feels like it's primarily React and Redux that emphasize the concept as, of immutability as a first class concern. I frequently hear this talked about when I was learning in just the realm of JavaScript itself, as you would talk about pass by value and pass by reference. And that's what they would try to get you to understand. Okay, sometimes it's going to pass the actual value itself, or sometimes it's going to copy it and then make a reference to it. And if you aren't aware of when you're passing by value or when you're passing by reference, then you're getting yourself into trouble with these kind of things. One of the tricky things for me when I was rewriting our docs last year, I rewrote, I, actually, I wrote a brand new tutorial from scratch that I called the Redux Essentials Tutorial, which now actually teaches Redux Toolkit as the standard way to write Redux logic. And then I rewrote the existing tutorial sequence, which starts off with writing all your actions and reducers by hand, heavily reworked that and called it the Redux Fundamentals tutorial. And that one now finishes by saying, now that you've written all this code by hand, here's Redux Toolkit, please never write that code by hand again. But the real trick in both of those is that Immer lets you write mutating state syntax, and it correctly turns it into safe and correct immutable updates. My concern is that people will see that and think it is always safe to mutate in a reducer. And the answer is no, no, it's only safe if you're inside of our magic create reducer and create slice functions that use Immer. How do you carefully teach that? And my only answer was slapping giant red warning banners multiple times in the tutorial saying, this only works because of Immer. Can you actually give a brief overview of like what Immer is? Immer is a library from Michelle Westrate, the author of the MobX state management tool. The idea is it really exports a single function called produce by default, and you pass in your existing state, so some kind of an object or an array, and the second argument to produce is a callback function. And the callback function receives what looks like your exact state that you just passed in, but it's actually been wrapped in a special kind of a JavaScript type called a proxy, which lets Immer intercept any attempts to read or write any fields in that object. Within that callback, you can mutate this draft value. You can set fields, delete fields, add nested values, push into arrays, anything you want. And it looks like you really are mutating that draft value. But internally, Immer actually records every change that you make. And when the callback function finishes, it replays all those operations with their immutable update equivalence and returns a final immutably updated value, just as if you had written a whole series of nested 
object spreads and array.concats and all the complicated immutable update logic that you normally would have written by hand. It drastically simplifies the process of writing immutable update code. One of the very first things that Redux Toolkit was built around was using Emmer by default in our create reducer function inside. And you don't even have to think about it. You just write some reducers that, quote, mutate the state and it just magically works. This is a very broad question and you obviously answer it in your documentation to a certain extent. When or if do I need Redux? Like what is a really good example of like a problem that's starting to create, that's starting to balloon, that Redux would fix? There's been lots of reasons given to potentially want to use Redux over the years. One of the most popular reasons traditionally has been to avoid the prop drilling problem. I need some data in widely separated components or even just in a parent in a deeply nested child. Redux lets me bypass handing it down as a prop through every level. That is a reason to use Redux, but it's really not the kind of reason I try to emphasize today. Really, the main point of Redux is that it allows you to write as much of your code in a predictable way so that you can understand when, where, why, and how your state changed over time. Now, there's also valuable properties of having a central store, being able to do things like see those state changes in the dev tools, have middleware that look at the flow of actions and kick off additional logic. Really, the point that I try to emphasize these days as the initial reason to want to use it is about the predictable state updates aspect. Now, as to when it makes sense to use it, it's gone back and forth over time. React has added more capabilities, like having the built-in use reducer hook. Other state libraries have become more popular over time, like MobX and XState. Now you've got data fetching and caching libraries like React Query and Apollo, and all these kind of overlap with some of the reasons you might have used Redux over time. So certainly in that sense, there are somewhat fewer times you would necessarily need to use Redux. The broad generic answer is it makes the most sense to use Redux when you have fairly complex state management in the client where a lot of that state needs to be handled by several different portions of the application and you want to try to manage portions of that logic outside of the React component tree. It's a generic answer, but it's also kind of a generic question for that matter. And what would you say some of the biggest projects you know that would use Redux? I don't have a huge list off the top of my head. I know Twitter's web client uses Redux. I know that Spotify uses Redux pretty heavily. A lot of people think that Facebook uses Redux a lot. They don't. My understanding is that their new Facebook site is mostly built with Relay, which is a GraphQL client. A lot of their older legacy code is still built using the original Flux implementation. There's isolated teams in Facebook that use Redux, but as far as I know, they never really heavily adopted it. Slack uses Redux. They have like the Redux stores, how they sync between your different devices, I think. Slack, yep. There are a lot of very major well-known companies and sites that use Redux, yeah. Would you say that you would be foolish to implement Redux before you wrote any of your actual logic. So like, I've got a project I need to start building. Would you say start coding first and then when you need Redux, add Redux? Or is it better to just go, I know I will need it one day, I'm going to add it from the start and go from there? 
There's a lot of different potential answers to this question, and some of it depends on your own development style. There's people who ask, like, should I start my app by making an HTML wireframe and then splitting it up and writing components? There's other people who would say you should build out all your logic first so you can kind of run your app even without a UI. There's other people who just want to dive straight into making some components and splitting it up as they go. To some extent, it's a question of how you personally approach development. There's valid points to be made in favor of both approaches. There's a question of you ain't going to need it. Don't add a thing until you know you truly have a need for it. I'm kind of punting on the question, but it's because there are so many different ways to approach building an app. I actually have been working on a project for the last year or so. It's a legacy AngularJS 1 application. Ugh. We've been migrating over to React and TypeScript, and I, I actually deliberately held off and did not add Redux to the new version of the code base for a long time. On the other hand, I actually did bring in Redux Toolkit, and I used the Create Slice API specifically to generate a reducer just for use with the React use reducer hook. I wanted to have a well TS typed reducer function. I just didn't see the need for a Redux store yet. And actually now we've hit the point where I think that the complexity of the application really does justify having a Redux store in there. So I finally went ahead and set it up, but I was kind of holding off on adding Redux because I didn't think the, the complexity or the use case justified it yet. Let's start getting into some of the, the TypeScript stuff. You've been converting over a lot of Redux, I think, in general to, to TypeScript. This is something that I at least have seen you. You've been tweeting about TypeScript a lot, so I'm curious like, what exactly that journey has been. Sure. It's kind of funny because all three of the major Redux repositories handle TypeScript in a different way. The current version of Redux 4.x is still written in plain JavaScript, but we have our own typedefs file that is directly in the repository. React Redux is still written in JavaScript, but we have never kept our own types. The React Redux type defs are kept over in the definitely typed repo, and the community has maintained those, which is good because the React Redux type defs are insanely complicated. I'm not sure I ever want to touch those. And on the other hand, Redux Toolkit itself, I started it in JavaScript, but it was converted to TypeScript some months later. That whole code base is written in TypeScript. Technically speaking, the Redux core was actually converted to TypeScript, and it's sitting there in the master branch in the repo. And it's been sitting there for like a year and a half now, and we still haven't published it. Someday, it might hopefully become Redux version 5, but there hasn't been a need to publish it yet, and there would probably be some breaking types changes. So we've actually just sort of been letting it sit there just because there's other more important things to worry about. I didn't actually start using TypeScript myself until the start of 2019, started converting one of my apps at work, and I actually wrote a whole blog post documenting my journey learning TypeScript as both a maintainer and an application developer. And I wrote that in, I don't know, maybe like November-ish 2019. And my conclusion at the time was that, okay, I'm fully sold on using TypeScript for applications. I refuse to ever write another line of app code again that isn't TypeScript, but the key is to use TypeScript pragmatically. I see a lot of people getting caught up in trying to get 100% absolute perfect type coverage for every line of code and like panicking if there's a single use of 
any in the code base because now there's like this hole in your types and the whole application could apparently explode in flames at any second. I think that's way overdone. Granted, maybe some of my perspective is because I've been converting existing JS apps to TypeScript, so I have a much more real-world-ish approach. But I think the key to using TypeScript effectively is to go for the 80% bang for the buck. Type your functions, type your arguments, your API calls and results, your React component props, your Redux reducers and action creators. And you might have to throw in some uses of any or like some loose types that say, yep, it's an object. It's got some keys in there, we think. But it's not worth spending hours trying to write this huge multi-line type def to satisfy the compiler if you know that when it goes in, it's a type A, and it goes out, it's a type B. Yeah, hand wave it a little bit, slap in a type fix me later equals any, and move on with your life. Go do something else more productive. The flip side of this, is that if you look at Redux Toolkit especially, we have some incredibly complicated type defs in there. Create action and create slice in particular have insanely complicated types because A, it's a library and we need to handle a lot of different potential ways people could use our code. And if you think about it, in a lot of ways, our type defs are complicated so that application and user code types don't have to be. Redux Toolkit does a lot of work to try to infer many of your types so that all you have to do is provide, say, like the type of your action payload. And we now know what the action is. We can generate the action creators. We can infer types from the action creator later on. And so because we've spent all that time to make our types complicated and handle all those different scenarios, your types as a user can be a lot simpler. And I think that's kind of really the difference between defining types for a library versus defining types for an application. When we had Lindsay on, creator of React Query, he has been converting his TAM stack over to TypeScript. And he said, writing TypeScript for libraries is significantly harder than writing TypeScript in your application. Oh, absolutely. It does seem like that way. If we think about TypeScript as an end user, a lot of the time it's typing your props, typing a function that obviously does something, and that's about it. Not much else happens at the end of the day with libraries that do a lot more complex things, sometimes headless, sometimes not. It can get very deep very fast. Look at React Redux for an example. You know, connect is a function that takes four arguments, all of which are optional. The first two arguments could be a function or an object or null. Map state could be a function or a function that returns a function. And then you have to do all this passing through of the types of the props combined with the types return. It's stupidly complicated which is one of the reasons why we now recommend the React Redux hooks API as the default, because use selector, it's one function that takes your state and returns a value. That is like really, really simple to type. And it's a lot simpler for users to look at and understand what's going on conceptually. There's still some complicated edge cases hidden in the actual implementation, but from a user perspective, it's very, very obvious what this API does and how you're supposed to use it. A lot of the time, I do totally agree with you about like the 80% principle. And I think the other way to look at it as well is how non-obvious is this function? If it's really a complex function and you think, well, I definitely need to put the time in to type it, then yeah. 
But some of the times you're like, even though it's a complex function, it is very simple. So you can't ignore it, put any and move on. I think that is super useful. And I think the other thing to say at the end of the day is if you work in a team, a type for you may take two hours to write that complex type, but someone else, it could take five minutes. So do you say, I'm going to leave it for to any for now for someone else to type later? It depends, really. Yeah, I did write a few fairly complex types in that application that I've been migrating to React and TypeScript. There was some backend code where we loosely put we needed to derive some data and we needed to do it in a bunch of different places based on certain inputs. And it was worth the time for me to set up a complex type that captured that transformation so that every time we did that process, all the variables you were dealing with had their types inferred from the inputs. In all the places where we actually use this, you basically say it's a config type with inputs X, Y, and Z, and everything else in that structure got typed automatically, and it just works. Took me a while to figure out how to do it, but in that case, the benefit more than outweighed the time that I sank into making it. That was exactly what Kim recommended when she was on the show. She We talked about TypeScript with her, and she said that getting the setup so that your types are inferred is always going to be the, the best way to go, because then you can get a lot of it kind of handled for you, and it just will figure out a lot of your types for you. So that sounds like, sounds like pretty good advice. Why don't we get into the RTK query stuff? So... I would be curious to get your definition of what RTK query is and how it relates to Redux Toolkit. Over the last couple of years, there, there's really been a big change in what a lot of developers, especially in the React ecosystem, are looking for and what problems they're trying to solve. In 2014, it was about state management. You know, Flux was basically created to solve a lot of the problems people saw with backbone models and events being triggered throughout your application. Flux and Redux were designed as a response to that problem. And what we've seen over the last few years is people are really switching over and they're focused more on data fetching and caching. You've always been able to fetch data from a server and put it into a Redux store. It's just that Redux didn't provide you anything for that out of the box. And so the typical pattern is you write a thunk that dispatches an action before you make the API call. And then you make the request and then you dispatch another action on success or a third action on failure. So you've got to define these three different action types. And then you got to define a reducer that has some loading state and handles the before the success and the failure cases. And now you have to do that for every single API call you make. And you can do it. Redux Toolkit even provides some newer APIs like create async thunk that simplify part of that process. But it's still a lot of code to have to write. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is a lot of people don't want to have to worry about any of that. They just want to say, here's a URL, go get it for me, give me back my data and is loading values, and let me just render my UI based on that. I don't care how it happens, I just want to know, is it loading and is it done? And so you see libraries like React Query and Apollo and SWR and Urkel really taking off in this space because they were purpose-built to solve the problem of fetching data from a backend, abstracting away the entire process of managing the caching and the loading state. As a user, all I do is say, use my query and I'm done. And there's been lots of third-party libraries that have been created that abstract some of that data fetching process for Redux, but we never had anything built in. 
I knew this was something we would want to try to tackle eventually for Redux Toolkit. And I'd been imagining kind of like a create async slice API, hypothetically, that would call create slice internally and maybe generate some thunks for a REST API automatically or something. And there was a discussion thread where people were kind of pasting in their own versions of that they'd made. And late last fall, my RTK co-maintainers, Lens Weber and Matt Sikowski, just started making a brand new library that just appeared out of nowhere. I almost like wasn't even aware what they were doing, and so they started hammering on something and throwing pull requests back and forth. What they've built is a Redux based version of a data fetching library inspired by the APIs and feature sets of these other data fetching tools like Apollo and React Query. It solves the same kind of problem space where you basically just say, here's my server, here's my endpoints, and it generates all the data fetching code and this loading state management for you automatically. But it has several distinct differences from how a React Query or an Apollo work. Because it's built on Redux Toolkit, it's completely UI agnostic. So the core functionality works even if you aren't using React. We've had people play around with building integrations for Vue and for Angular and NGRX. You go about defining your API endpoints in a different way. You actually kind of define the endpoints like in a single service file, and then it automatically generates a reducer and a middleware that you can add to your store setup rather than like React Query, where you're defining the URLs more as you're calling the use query hook. And then it actually, on top of the UI agnostic behavior, it actually has some React-specific functionality where it does generate React-specific hooks for each endpoint that you've defined. The canonical example in the RTK Query docs is a Pokemon example, where it hits the publicly available Pokemon API and it has like a Pokemon by name query or something like that. And it automatically generates a React hook called use fetch Pokemon by name or something like that. And on top of that, because this is all written in TypeScript, we're able to generate the hook with all the correct types in terms of what the arguments are and what the return value is. So they threw this together really over the course of just a couple months. And for purposes of experimentation, we've published it as a separate temporary standalone package that we've called RTK Query, RTK Redux Toolkit for short. And the idea was that it would allow us to iterate a little bit faster on this rather than trying to put out a whole series of alphas of Redux Toolkit itself. That's allowed us to gather feedback, iterate on the API, make a bunch of improvements, make sure we're handling all the use cases correctly. So as of right now, today is mid-April, we are finalizing the work to put together a final alpha of RTK Query as a standalone package. And as soon as that's done, we're actually going to take all the code and all the documentation, and we're going to merge that back into the main Redux Toolkit repo. And we're actually going to put out a new Redux Toolkit release, probably version 1.6, that actually now has all that RTK query functionality in the official Redux Toolkit package. So you just install Redux Toolkit as usual, and you get all the RTK query functionality built in. We do intend to deliver this as separate entry points to help with the tree shaking and all that kind of stuff so that you're only getting what you actually want to use in your application. But we're very, very excited about this.
I guess the first question most people would want to know then is why use that over bringing in a React query? First off, I want to say React Query is awesome. Tanner has done an amazing job building that library. He's done a lot of work to really help kind of popularize this style of API design. RTK Query kind of shamelessly rips off. Uh, so, I mean, takes inspiration from React Query and Apollo, again, in terms of API design and feature set. I want to be very clear that we owe a lot of debt to them for kind of helping trailblaze this. There are definitely people who have used React Query and Redux together. Tanner's standard comment is that if you switch all your server caching state into React Query, what's left over is probably so minimal that you can get by with just standard built-in React component state. I would say in a lot of cases that is probably true. But some reasons you might want to consider using RTK Query and Redux Toolkit in this case. One is if you already have a Redux app and you want to simplify your data fetching logic. You want to drop a lot of like the handwritten thunks and stuff that you already have. Another would be if you have an app that needs to deal with multiple different UI layers, maybe you're in the process of migrating from something to React and you happen to be using Redux, or maybe you just really like to be able to use the Redux dev tools and the rest of the Redux ecosystem, and you want to be able to integrate your data fetching capabilities with the rest of those tools. One other interesting thing that's also still in a pre-alpha stage right now, but we got some proof of concepts where we can actually take like an open API schema definition and actually code generate an entire RTK query service endpoint file with all the right types, with all the right endpoint definitions, and generate all the rest of your hooks based on that. It wouldn't surprise me if someone has done the same thing for React Query. I just haven't looked, but that's definitely something that we have a proof of concept for and we should be able to expand on down the road. It's a bit like if you were going to use like Prisma. Prisma's obviously not hooks, it's more like a function, but it's kind of like that, that you would define a function slash hook that would just give you all the information when you're required. And you've basically abstracted away the whole fetch, the whole loading, everything to do with that is all abstracted away with a simple hook to basically use the library. Pretty cool. And you can use RTK query with GraphQL. I know I've seen at least one GraphQL example in the docs. We actually do provide our own built-in fetch wrapper automatically. And so most of the examples use that base fetch query thing to do the actual API calls. But it's easy to swap that out if you want to use something like Axios or similar instead. And because it's ultimately just making basic HTTP requests, it's pretty easy to swap in some kind of layer that does like a GraphQL query string parsing and does the actual GraphQL request and returns whatever the data is. And so, yeah, we, we have a GraphQL example in the docs. The goal of RTK is to never fully replace Redux. It's an addition to Redux. Well, that's where we get into some interesting philosophical questions. Redux Toolkit itself is a wrapper around the Redux Core library. The Redux Toolkit package depends on the Redux Core. We've had discussions of what would happen if we just made all this literally be the Redux package. And we concluded that there's just too much inertia in the ecosystem. And Redux Toolkit is opinionated enough that not everybody likes those opinions. It's best to just leave it as a separate package the way it is now. Having said that, if I could wave a magic wand 
and replace every single handwritten reducer, every single nested object spread, every single handwritten constant, every single handwritten thunk with their Redux toolkit equivalents, I would do that in a heartbeat. Obviously, realistically, that isn't going to happen. But from my standpoint right now, Redux toolkit is Redux. Redux toolkit is the standard way to write Redux logic. If you really want to know how to do it by hand, we'll show you how those abstractions work under the hood. But from a teaching perspective and a usage perspective, at this point, Redux Toolkit is the way to use Redux. You heard it here, folks, from the man himself. <laughs> I think the easiest answer would just be to uh, put at the top of Redux. Do not use this unless you 100% know what you're doing. Just go use RTK and just call it a day. Be like, we will not accept any questions unless you know what you're doing. Like I said, it's been an interesting challenge to balance how we teach this stuff in the docs. And so that is why we now have these two large tutorials. So the essentials tutorial just says, okay, we're going to teach you Redux Toolkit as a standard approach. And we're actually going to jump into kind of like building a real world-ish type application with API calls and normalized state and all this other stuff. And we're not going to worry about how this works under the hood. We're just going to show you how to use it the right way so that you could dive in and start being productive. But other people really, they need to know how it works first to feel comfortable using abstractions. And so that's why there's also the fundamentals tutorial, which does still start from the bare basics. It shows handwriting reducers and action type strings and everything else. And then it finishes by showing, and now you can simplify your store setup, simplify your reducers, simplify your data fetching. Here's how Redux Toolkit makes all that a whole lot simpler. Honestly, one of the biggest frustrations for me today is that there's thousands of existing Redux tutorials that are still showing legacy Redux patterns, videos that people are looking at. I even noticed literally just yesterday, like Free Code Camp and Code Academy are still teaching older style patterns, including use of the Connect API in their courses. And I can't do anything to magically update all those other tutorials out there. And the problem is most tutorials aren't updated to match the patterns we're showing in the docs. And it frustrates me, but I can't do anything about it except gripe on Twitter. All I can do is try and tell people, read our docs and encourage people to look at the newer patterns. I think I've just came up with the ultimate solution is to rename RTK query to Redux2. <laughs> call Redux Redux and be like, oh, no, no that, that's completely gone. We're, we're now on Redux 2, even though Simba is something completely different. Take the Prisma approach. That actually brings up a big point in regards to maintaining a library, and that's dealing with ecosystem compatibility. I take compatibility concerns extremely seriously. I'm fortunate in that both the Redux core and the React Redux library have basically, the basic APIs have not changed since 2016. If you look at React Redux, we've actually rewritten the guts of it like three or four times. And I have a whole 10,000 word blog post about when and why we've done that. But for all intents and purposes, you could take your Redux code from 2016, update to the latest versions of Redux and React Redux, and it would work just fine. I mean, we've got people who are you know, using the Redux core as a script tag in a code pen. We've got people who are writing hyper-sophisticated code split tools in, you know, Airbnb and Slack and whatever. It's being used in everything from IE11 to Node to latest Chrome. But has anyone rewritten Redux in Rust? 
I think I may have seen that at some point. I've certainly seen re-implementations in like C Sharp and Java. As a maintainer, I have to take all these different potential runtime environments and use cases and stuff into consideration. There's a, a saying out there called Hiram's Law, which basically says every bit of behavior in a library, even if it's not formally documented, will become something that people expect and depend on. As an example, in React Redux version 6, we switched to using the context API for state updates. And one of the reasons I did that was that it would help ensure consistency of the data all throughout the React component tree. It turns out that a lot of the code splitting and SSR solutions for Redux relied on being able to inject a reducer as a component is loaded and immediately have the additional state available as soon as that component tries to render. And with this context-based approach, that didn't happen. You were still looking at the old state as it existed at the time the render started. I didn't realize people were relying on that aspect of our behavior until someone filed an issue and said, hi, this is broken. What can we do about it? That problem sort of got fixed because we dropped the context-based approach in React Redux version 7. But it's all these edge cases and scenarios that you have to take into account. With Redux Toolkit right now, we just redid our build system. We switched from using the TSDX package for bundling the library to actually using a custom setup based on ES build that someone contributed for us. As I was looking at that, I was having to say, okay, how many different output file formats do we need? We need CommonJS for development and production. We need an ES module with import-export syntax, but it's got to be backwards compiled to ES5, so it works in bundlers and IE11. We need UMD files for development and production so that people can use them as script tags. We also need a modern build that has import-export syntax, but ES2017 compiling syntax all the way through. But we also need versions that have been pre-compiled for development and production. And oh, and if I add this new exports keyword to our package.json, it's apparently going to break under Node because Node just switched how they handle ES modules. It's enough to make you pull your hair out. I would still love to have a guide that says how to do this stuff the right way because I barely feel like I understand any of this. I'm glad you got some ES build in there right at the end for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was making a comment about like how, how complicated our setup is. And I made some comment about like ES build can't handle this right. And some user was like, yeah, well, I, I thought ES build was just for applications, isn't it? And the user basically responded by filing a PR to replace our build system. I'm like, oh, okay. I was wrong about that. I'm happy to be wrong. Yeah, ES build's pretty powerful. <laughs> It's pretty powerful, but I'm not the first one to be like, is that it? Like, installed, and it's like, was that it? Like, it didn't fail much faster on some things, but... There was a great video that dropped about a month ago with, I think, Jason Langstorff and Sunil Pai talking about how ES build is insanely fast. And okay, if your build happens in like a few milliseconds, how does that change your approach to developing applications and libraries? And what other tools like Vite are being built on top of ES build? It was a fascinating watch. Highly recommend that. I like that episode too. Let's share that with Aldo. He appreciated it also. All right, well, we're about at the end of our time here. Mark, really appreciate you being here with us. I really appreciate all the work you put into open source and not only the library, but communicating the library and thinking holistically about what the library needs and how it 
fits into the whole ecosystem. I appreciate your kind of quote-unquote thought leadership as much as we all hate that word. It is kind of what some of us do to a certain extent. You know, you gotta take that seriously, so uh, thank you for that. And let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can get in touch with you. I'm at Ace on Twitter and Reddit and the Reactive Flux Discord. I am at Mark Erickson on GitHub and Stack Overflow. I blog at blog.isquaredsoftware.com. Like I said, if you if you say the word Redux in a comment thread, there's a good chance it'll pop up about five minutes later. Thank you for your time. It's been great to have you on. I was going to say the final question would be, but do I truly need Redux? <laughs> Go read the documentation and it will tell you if you need it or not. Thanks for having me. respect for people who just pour as much time into open sources as you do so we'll have a lot of things to talk about